Let's come back together, find our seats. I love missions conference, especially with all the flags. I can't see the clock in the back, which means I can pretty much go as long as I want. So um, that, that works out well. Um, as I said, I'm Pastor Ron. Welcome, especially if this is your first time here. We'd love having you here. Um, this morning we're going to talk about Acts chapter 12. And I want to start by, by just thinking through how many of you have ever experienced a power struggle of some sort? Yeah? Any parents? You know, there, there's, I, I know there's never... Power struggles are interesting things because we can have power struggles in almost every area of life, right? You can have power struggles at work between a boss and employee or sometimes I see it between employee and employee that are jockeying for position. You can have power struggles just with siblings. I, I know that never happens. But um, the whole sibling rivalry that comes out of power struggles and the idea for who's going to be on top, who's going to be the one that wins. In politics, it seems like it's endless power struggles and we've forgotten to get anything done because we're too worried about who's on top and who's in charge. Unfortunately, marriage can sometimes have power struggles. And family can have power struggles. Just in a really down-to-earth sense, when you pull up to a signal and you look at the car next to you and you're like, I'm going to get off the line faster than them. Yeah, yeah, and you're in your little Corolla and you're like, no, no, you're not. No, But it's, it's a power struggle of sorts. And so we have these things because there's something in us, there's something in our spirit that wants to be in charge or wants to be on top, that wants to be in control. And, and so... We, we come to today's text, and, and I start with power struggles because on one layer, today's text is a power struggle, unfortunately, between a man and God. And when we come down to it, these same power struggles, we can apply t- to God all the time, and we do apply to God all the time. Every time we choose to sin, we are saying, I know better than God. It is a power struggle. We are saying, I am in charge and you're not. You know, when kids are little, we say, you're not the boss of me. And I'm like, actually, I am. Um, and then you're talking the same way, and you're in a power struggle with a two-year-old, and it's, it's a mess. Um, but we do that to God sometimes. Every time we sin, every time we complain about His plans, because they aren't our plans. Every time He doesn't answer prayer in the way that we think He should, because we know best or better. And that's a power struggle. And so we come to today's text and we see a power struggle between Herod and God. And and all of chapter 12 is going to be this power struggle. It's one chapter that sounds very familiar to Nebuchadnezzar that we talked about in Daniel. Except the end is a little more abrupt on this one and a little more gruesome. But we'll we'll get there. but I, so, so I want us to think through our relationship with God and the power struggle we have here, but also think in the broader picture of Acts what is going on. This isn't just about Herod and God, Herod and his pride, Herod and doing what he wants. This is about Satan trying to stop God's church. Because if you think through where we've been in the book of Acts, we just had the gospel go to Antioch, to Gentiles in Antioch, And Antioch is going to be the sending agency of missions, which is why I love missions conference where it is. It is going to be the hub of missions activity to the rest of the world. Part of the reason why we're here today is because of the missions that went out of Antioch. 
And so the last two chapters, we saw the gospel go there. We see the church exploding there, the gospel changing lives there. The church at Jerusalem sends leaders there. They're like, this is from God. And they support it. And so what does Satan want to do at that point? He wants to stop that work any way he can. And, and he sees the gospel exploding there. And so like a cornered animal, he's going to lash out and try to stop the church from doing God's work. Because if he can stop it at the beginning, maybe he thinks, delusionally, maybe he thinks he can stop it from going to the ends of the world. And so we have two layers, right? We have the human layer with Herod and power struggles and what does that mean? And we have the spiritual layer to the deeper layer of what is God doing with his church. And so we come to Acts chapter 12 and turn there in your Bibles if you, if you will. Acts chapter 12, 1 through 25 or, or scan to your app to there. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black Bible right underneath a seat right around you. Love for you to, to take that. If you don't have one at home, take that as our gift to you. So you have God's word. But Acts chapter 12, and in the, in the time that we have, we'll be flying through the whole chapter because it's really one story. And so I want us to see it as one story. But in this story, we're going to see that through Herod, Satan attempts to stop God's work before it spreads. But the church relies on God in prayer, and God intervenes, showing that he is God and Herod is not. It's a lot of words to summarize. I'm like, I just can't leave any parts of it out. And so that's our our summary for the day as we talk about this power struggle. And so we start with verses 1 through 4, the first scene as Satan tries to attack the church, but Herod also is in this struggle thinking he is better than God or thinking he is God, which again is what we all do when we sin and when we take matters in our own hands. And so in verses 1 through 4, the, the, in your notes, point number one is Satan attacks where God is working. Satan attacks where God is working. He almost always will attempt to stop God's work from moving forward. And he's doing it through Herod here. But Satan will attack where he's worried. He will attack where God is moving because he wants to stop it. And so we get to verses 1 through 4. Let's start with 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now I know in in the New Testament we have a number of Herods, right? You have the Herod when Jesus was born. And that this is the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the Herod when Jesus was born. You have Herod Antipas, who was there when John the Baptist was beheaded and when Jesus was killed. This is his nephew. And so this is just a, a Herod and a family of Herods that all sort of are the same person. And they all are defying God and think a little bit too highly of themselves. And so this is... Herod Agrippa I, and he ruled from about 37 to 44 A.D. And so he has this idea, I'm going to lay violent hands on some that belong to the church. I'm going to start tearing the church apart. Starting in Jerusalem, we're going to start making sure their leadership's gone. And so in verse 2, really a sobering way to start the chapter, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And that's all we hear about James. James was one of the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee. James and John walked with Christ. And he's the first of the twelve to die for the cause of Christ. And to be martyred for the cause of Christ. With the sword, probably the Ro- when, when the Romans said with the sword, that probably meant beheading. And so when I said Satan attacks, Satan attacks. 
In this case, Herod's idea is if we can cut off the head of the church or the heads of the church, we can stop the work. We can stop this cult that has just been so annoying for so long. It's interesting, if you think of James and John, one of the things, and we see growth in all of the disciples, we see growth in ourselves, hopefully. One of the interesting things is James and John were the ones that that came to Christ as they were walking with him and said, can we sit on your right and left hand in glory? Can we be next to you, the places of power? We are pretty close to you. We're we're the special ones here. Uh, Peter, we'll just leave him off to the side. And in Mark 10, 38 and 39, Jesus said this. Jesus said to them, "You, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And in that sobering time where Jesus is telling them what's going to happen in the future, he's foretelling that they would be killed and martyred for Christ. And James was. And James was the first one. John was probably the last one, but both killed for the cause of Christ. And so we get to verses 1 and 2, and things look dark for the church. James one of the apostles, one of the, the leadership group of the church has been martyred. He's been beheaded. A statement is made here. And, and so then we go to verse 3. And when he, and this is he is Herod, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So James was sort of the trial, okay? Let's go arrest James. Little quick trial, kill him, behead him. And then he noticed the Jews in Jerusalem, they were pleased with him. And a ruler, especially a self-centered, egotistical ruler, likes it when people are pleased with him. And he's having to make up for some political things that have happened. And so he's gaining favor. And he says, they liked it when I killed James. Let's go after Peter. Peter was also one of the leadership team, possibly sort of the, the leader that had risen to the top of that leadership team. And so he goes after Peter in verse 3. He he arrested him. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so in in verses 3 and 4, we see that now Peter has been taken. Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. Let me explain that real quickly. The Passover was the feast where they celebrated the Exodus, right? That that uh, the angel of death passed over the houses with the blood on the doorposts and they were released from Egypt. And then right after that was seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they were always celebrated together. In fact, by this point, they were calling the whole week Passover, even though Passover proper is where it started, and then you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed. One of the things that Herod realized is if you go beheading people in the middle of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that was not proper. That was not the way to gain favor. And so he arrests Peter and puts him in jail. Now, when you see things like to bring him out to the people after the Passover, that literally means to bring him out for a sham trial and kill him. And so this wasn't a an an arrest that maybe he'd get out of. This was a death sentence. And so this is what the church is, is dealing with. James, one of their leaders, is killed. 
Peter, sort of the, the vocal mouthpiece of the church, is now taken and is scheduled to be killed. In verse 4, we see just how intent Herod was at keeping Peter in jail. Remember earlier in Acts? Peter was thrown in jail before and all of a sudden was not in jail and no one knew how because an angel had come and and rescued him. And so Herod's like, that's not happening again. And we see part of this power struggle here as he's going up against the church, as he's going up against God. He puts four squads of soldiers to guard him. And so this is overkill. And we're going to find out later what they did at night even was they would chain him to two guards have two guards by the door, possibly one by one gate, one by another gate, and then go in shifts to make sure no one fell asleep. And so there is no way God is going to overcome Herod's power here. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And so Herod here is exerting his power and his authority and what he wants. It's interesting that at this time, 10 or 11 years earlier, was when Jesus was executed. This time of the year. And where Peter had denied Christ, but now is in jail on death row to die for Christ. And James, the man who wanted a position of power next to Jesus, died a martyr's death humbly serving Christ. We see these men that have been changed by the Gospel. And so the question after verses 1 through 4 is, will this stop the church? Is the gospel unquenchable or, or will it stop the church? Is Herod able to stop God? Is Herod able to stop this movement? And we're going to see that God watches out for the church and he carries the church through this time, even with events that don't make sense. Why was James killed? Why, God, did you allow that to happen? But as I said at, the, at point one, we need to expect Satan to attack where God is working. That even applies today. If we see God starting to work in this neighborhood and people coming to Christ, or we see God working through some of our outreach and things like that, we should expect Satan to start attacking. And in many of the ways that we've seen in Acts, internally with internal conflict and relational conflict, externally with laws or or persecution or some of the things that are happening, this is not a surprise village. When God is doing a work, Satan doesn't like it. And he will attack, and we should expect it and be ready for it and be ready to to continue on in light of that. And so Satan attacks where God is working. Verse 5, the church responds in fervent request to God. So the point is, point number two, respond with trusting, fervent prayer. says, just simple. So Peter was kept in prison by by Herod's power, and and there's a, there's a, 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 a word play here of, Herod's doing all he can to keep Peter in place. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So things look bad. James is dead. Peter goes soon. And the church goes to the powerful one. They go to God. They don't go to Herod with their requests. They go to God in in prayer. And you might say, well, what else could they do? And, and I don't know what else they could do, but the fact of the matter is fervent prayer to the God of the universe is the best thing to do. And this wasn't just a quick 30 seconds before they ate. This was fervent prayers we're going to see all night. And, and as, as much as it took, they would get together and just pray and pray and pray. And so we have to ask the question, would we do the same thing? Do we believe God is powerful enough that prayer makes a difference? 
Amen? We need to. Because God is, is the one that is over all things and the creator of the universe. And so this earnest prayer is a prayer that you work at. Fervent prayer we use sometimes. And the, the verb usage there, just for our English buffs, it's an imperfect, which means an ongoing action. So it means they kept praying over and over. It was constant hard work of prayer. And they knew that this was the way to deal with Satan's attacks. And so they are, they are praying fervently for Peter, for his life, for his release. Meyer, a quote from Meyer about prayer says this, The great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. I thought about that. I thought about how many times in life things have happened and prayer is in the first place I go. And prayer is an afterthought or it's not fervent prayer. It's not the work of prayer. And many times it's because I think I can solve it on my own. But the church went to God with fervent prayer. Then we get to verses 6 through 11 and we get the story. This is the heart of the story and there's some humor in the story in this dark, dark time for the church. There's humor in the story of how God works. And point number three is God answers prayer showing His amazing power for His glory. Showing His amazing power for His glory. And I'd underline both His there because this was about what He is doing. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so get the setting, we're now at the end of the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover time, and they're about to bring Peter out the next day to kill him. So this is the, the night before he was about to die. Um, you know, in, in, in a story, in a movie sense, this is like saving the best part, the climax, to right before the character is about to die and, and right before Death Star is about to blow up or whatever it is. That's what this is. It's the night before. So on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And Luke is doing a great job of showing us there's no way he's getting out. He's chained up. Herod is powerful. The Roman soldiers are amazing. Notice little things in the text. What is Peter doing? He's sleeping. That is a profound statement. Because he is able to sleep, he is able to trust God the eve of his execution. Because Peter knew no matter what the results, he was in God's hand. He was trusting God in the worst of circumstances. Even if they took his life, he would die serving God. And so he was able to sleep. Anyone ever had sleepless nights where you're worried about life? Or is it just me? I, I don't sleep well. Those of you that know me, that's a joke. Uh, my sleep habits are a joke because I just don't sleep well. And I can easily catch myself just mulling over events of the day and mulling over things that happened and processing and processing and processing. Whereas the answer is to give it to God. We see that in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, that peace comes when we give it to God. And so Peter was able to. Just again, I love how Acts ties into the Gospels, and it's part two. Luke wrote this too. Do you remember Peter on a boat with Jesus as a storm came up? And what is Jesus doing? 
sleeping. And Peter's like, wake up! We're going to die! And we hear the eve of his death. He now has grown to a point where he can sleep and trust God and have peace. He can sleep in peace because he knows God is awake. And so we come to the the story goes on in verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. This is, this is awesome. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. Just so, so we know, the word for struck there doesn't mean nudge. It means to hit hard with something. <laughs> Peter's asleep. <laughs> He's out. And, and I don't know if any of you sleep hard like that. Peter's sleeping hard. The angel has to, to, to hit him to wake him up. <laughs> Like I said, there's a lot of humor in the story. So he hits him in the side, wakes him up, and says, get up quickly. Now, if you're Peter, you're like, okay, I'm chained to two guards, which, by the way, they must all be asleep, and it could be a a divine-induced sleep. In the next phrase, and the chains fell off his hands. And we could try to to say, oh, someone, you know, Peter picked the lock, or... No, the chains fell off his hands. This is a power struggle, and this is God's turn. Herod had his turn, and God's like, chain's gone, and they fall off. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. He's probably still a little groggy. In fact, we know he's a little out of it still, and we're going to find that out later. So Peter's disoriented. He's half awake. The angel says, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And Peter's like, well, we must be going somewhere. And he did so. And he said to him, the angel said to Peter, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real. So he's still thinking he's out. He's still thinking he's having a great dream. <laughs> and, and he's like, this, I don't know if this is real. He thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, probably the ones at the various gates as they went out, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. This is probably the, the fortress of Antonia, and there's probably one gate that leads to the city, one gate that leads to the Temple Mount. And, and so they come to the gate leading to the city, and this is the first grocery store automated door because it just opens on its own accord. It, it's sort of fun. The Greek word there means automated. <laughs> and so it just they walk up to this locked gate. How are we going to get out? Uh, it doesn't matter. And, and they're gone. And so there's, there's so much humor in this, and, and more humor is coming. And, and he walks out. In verse, verse 10, when they, uh, they had passed the first gate, second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And so the angel got him out of prison, got him far enough away where he could, he could know what to do then, and the angel left him. The prayer was answered. When Peter came to himself in verse 11, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. When he came to himself, so he finally wakes up fully, and he's like, I'm not in prison. <laughs> I, I had this weird dream, and here I am. And, and, and that, that literally is what Luke is trying to, to portray here. And he says, Now I'm sure the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting? They were expecting his death. They were expecting an execution. But he's gone. 
Second time, an angel helps him to escape. And, and, and this is just so powerful because God is doing a miracle to protect His church, to stop Herod from ending the church's work. And He does this, and, and God will do miracles, and the reason He does miracles is to progress His work and to show His glory. To progress His work and to show His glory. In John fourteen thirteen, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And, and what Jesus is saying there, I will answer your prayer, and the reason I will answer it is for the glory of God. And think about this. When we pray, we are praying things that when God answers, it, it is to such a degree that He gets the praise. He gets the glory. This is why if we pray that the Dodgers beat the angels or something like that, it's just a silly prayer. Because God, God really doesn't mind who wins. I'm sorry for those fans that are here. It's, but we pray and when God answers, it's to show His glory. And when we pray and God doesn't answer, it's to show His glory or to advance His work. And that's the harder one to swallow because of our power struggle with God. Because we know best and we know how to progress His work the best, but we don't. And do we trust the God who created all things and holds us in His hands and knows the outcome of every decision? Do we trust Him with our lives? And I challenge us today that we need to. And this is a particularly hard setting for the church. You know, we have some humor in the story, but one of their prayers was answered, but we forget verses 1 and 2. One of their prayers wasn't answered. Because there is no doubt that the church was also praying for James. And James was beheaded. And so we come to a very difficult theological question. Why does God answer yes to some prayers and no to others? And, and just like Job, God is not required to tell us the why. He tells us the who. He tells us that He is in charge. And we're saying there's no one higher than Him. And He's the Lord of the universe. And, and creation displays His majesty. Well, that means we trust Him with the yeses and the noes. Why not, James? We don't know. But God does. Peter was given 30 more years. Why not Stephen? Why was he taken? And we don't know. There we get a little more of a hint as it says the church was persecuted and spread through all Judea and spread through Samaria and God used that to spread His church. And that's uncomfortable for us when we think that God will allow one death, not cause, but He will allow Satan one death if He knows that it will spread the church to the world. And and we face these questions in real life, right? And we ask why. And we might ask, did I pray wrong? And maybe the church was like, okay, what, were we more fervent with Peter? Were, did we pray a little better? Were we closer with God? No, God said no to one and yes to another. And, and the key is God will answer according to his will. What will be for his glory and our good? And we don't get to define those because we're not good at defining those. We define those in self-centered, our own experiential way. 
And God defines them in a truthful way. And so God will answer according to His will. He will answer what will bring the most glory, what will bring the most people into the kingdom. And, and we can take comfort in knowing that God answers prayer. And, and if we pray in a right heart, He will answer those prayers and, and they, they will be heard. And if we're sure that He answers prayer and He hears prayer, then when the results don't turn out like we, we want, we can be sure that God's answer was different and that it's from God and not be angry. And th- this is tough. And, and l- let me just put it in, into to perspective. Let's say I'm praying that I don't lose my job. And, and some of you have been through job losses and job situations. You're praying you don't lose your job. You lose your job. If you prayed that and you're right with God and walking with God and your heart's there, He has heard you. And if you still lose your job, what does that mean? That a sovereign God that loves you and wants what's best for you chose to allow you to lose your job. And that's hard, but it's so... When we, when we start to really grasp that, it's so freeing. Because now I don't have to be mad at every time I, I think God didn't answer prayer. Because He did, His answer was no, and He knows best. And He answers yes sometimes for His glory. And we don't know why. And we can ask all the questions. Why didn't God give me children like I asked for? Why did some people I know die from COVID and some didn't? And it makes no sense. I had two brothers with the same symptoms and down the same path. And one miraculously survived and one didn't. I don't know why. But God does. And God is going to work those. He's going to work those things for His good. The other thing we're going to see in this text is evil will always be avenged. And so there's a, my sense of justice likes the end of this chapter. It probably isn't the love of God. <laughs> I'm working through that. <laughs> we need to move on. Point four. Don't be shocked when God answers. Rather, give God glory. Don't be shocked when God does answer because He's heard all of them. He's answering one way or another. But give God glory. Verse 12, 12 through 19. When he realized this, so, so Peter realized, I'm free. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. John Mark we've seen once before, but here we see him again, and he's going to play a role coming up in Acts on a missionary journey. He's also probably the author of the Gospel of Mark. So, so that's the, the setting here. And it, I have fun with some of the history of Acts because it all just ties together because these are true stories. So Peter goes to Mary, the mother of, of John, whose other name was Mark, probably at a bigger house that was able to have a lot of people from the church there because it says where many were gathered together and were praying. And so we see a picture. And again, this is the middle of the night that Peter's released. The church is gathered together and still praying. Even though this is several days later, right before Passover is ended, they're still praying. They're praying corporately. That's something to understand is this wasn't just individual prayers. There is, there is a powerful example throughout the gospel or throughout the New Testament of the church coming together to pray. And so many were gathered together and were praying. 
And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So a big house, maybe an upper room where they're at. They have a courtyard and there's a gate out there. Peter's knocking on the gate. Rhoda comes to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So you get the picture, right? He's knocking. Who is it? It's Peter. Can I come in? She's like, yes, Peter's here. And she leaves him outside, a fugitive (laughs) that has somehow escaped jail, (laughs) prison. She leaves him there to go in. There's a sweetness to the excitement here of look what God's doing. And so we come to 15 and she runs in, says, Peter's standing at the gate. And they said to her, and this is why I said, don't be shocked when God answers. They said to her, you're nuts. Okay, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, this is a confusing verse, and we have to understand some Jewish tradition here. One of, one of Jewish folklore is that when, that each person had a guardian angel. In fact, we still have that idea in our culture today, right? So each person had their guardian angel, and somehow the guardian angel looked like you. <laughs> yeah, sort of funny. And, um, and when you died, oftentimes that guardian angel would come and visit some of the people that knew you in your form to comfort and be with them. So this is not biblical. Understand, I, no emails that I have bad doctrine. Um, th- th- I'm not saying this is biblical, but this was a common belief in culture at the time. It looks like they might have been taking some of that and applying it because they're like, you're crazy. Peter's in jail. There's no way with the power of Herod that he could get out. And so this must be his angel. That's the only explanation we have. Don't like that theology, they would think, but hey, that, that's the only explanation we have. 16. But Peter continued knocking. <laughs> wonder what he was thinking at the time. I don't know. He continues knocking. And when they opened it, they saw him and were amazed. Praise God, right? God answers prayer in amazing ways at times. And they were amazed because God has the power to do this. And God's power did this. And But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. So they're amazed, they're talking, obviously a room like that, everyone would, I mean, there would be noise, there would be excitement, and he holds up his hand, says, wait, wait. And he quiets them down, and he says, this is what happened. And don't miss how he describes it. What's the words he uses? Who brought him out of prison? The Lord brought him out of prison. And that's a hinge to the next paragraph, and, and intentionally so. Peter's first response is to give God glory for answered prayer. Not to take credit for it. Not to say, isn't it amazing I'm free? His first response was to give God glory for answered prayer. To give Him credit for what had happened. And He said, tell these things to James and to his brothers. Then He departed and went to another place. Now, as a quick aside, you may have a question about what He said. Tell these things to James and to his brothers. What happened to James? Executed, right? This is a different James. (laughs) So nothing weird going on here. This is probably James, the brother of Jesus, or the half-brother of Jesus, who in in, by chapter 15, we see him as the vocal um, head of the church, maybe, or at least the mouthpiece of the church. And so this is one of the leaders of the church now, which is a great testimony to to Jesus' family. 
This is the same family that told Jesus he was nuts and what are you doing and tried to get him to stop in the towns. This is that same family that tried to get Jesus under control and now James is, is following Jesus and going to lead the church to expand the gospel to the known world. And so we see, we do see a shock that God answers, but we see Peter giving God glory. And we need to get over that shock when God answers and immediately give God glory. So when things happen that we know are answers to prayer, don't be ashamed to say, God did this. This is what the Lord did. I don't care if they're non-believers or believers. Don't be afraid to give God glory because your story is often what God is going to use to bring people to the kingdom. And so when God answers prayer, say God answered prayer. And I'm praising Him for that. And it may open doors that you have never had open for the gospel. I, I was talking with some people and just about Susie's condition this week. And I said, you know what? We don't know what the future holds, but God has done a miracle. And He deserves the credit. And we got into a discussion about that. And we need to give glory to God where glory is due. So what's Herod's response to this? Power struggle. Herod thinks he's won. He has Peter where Peter can't get out. And we have automated chains falling off, doors opening, Peter's out. And so Herod, in 18... Is sort of a, a tag on to God's answer here. Herod, now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. People were very upset <laughs> over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Sixteen men died because of this. And one of the the traditions, the Code of Justinian said that if you were a Roman guard and you let someone get away, you would suffer their same um, penalty. And so since he was about to be executed, they were all executed. They should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So Peter gets out. Herod is upset, kills the guards, says, I'm out of here. I can't handle it here anymore. I'm going to Caesarea, which was the, the capital of the province. He has a palace there too, and, and so he's, he's gone. And I want to end with point number five, just as we wrap up. God will not give his glory to another. This is how the power struggle ends. God wins. Just straight up. Verses 20 through 23. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon are, are towns that are right above um, Israel. And so we have Caesarea here, Jerusalem here. Herod goes to here. Tyre and Sidon are here, and they are actually not in Israel. They are um, in the country north of Israel, but they trade with Israel, and it looks like they relied on Israel for food. And especially in the Galilee area here, that's where a lot of food came for them. Remember a famine in the land? We saw that. That's why... Paul and Barnabas went down to, um, collected money from Tarsus and went down to Jerusalem. And so um, we don't know the conflict here. Herod's angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they're having a, a, a trade dispute. They came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, I think that's just a little in there like, okay, they were able to bribe someone and get to Herod, so he's not as powerful as he thinks. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, 
took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. So get the setting here. He puts on the, the, his finest. And he goes out. Some of the scholars, for those that have been to Israel with us, some of the scholars think it might have been that platform in the Hippodrome that he came out. And he addresses the people. There's this big group that maybe is celebrating a trade deal or, or whatever it is. And they start to proclaim that Herod is God and not a man. And Herod accepts it. Doesn't stop it. Remember Peter's response? The Lord did this. Herod's like, oh yeah, this is good. 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And it ends in a gruesome way because Herod took glory that belonged to God. He took power that belonged to God. He assumed that he was somehow an equal with God or, or on par with deity. And he accepted that. And God struck him down and the, end of the, the power struggle ends right there in worms. Not to get too gross there, but the order is actually significant. He was eaten by worms and then breathed his last. And so there's all kinds of, of ideas. It could have been a cyst produced by tapeworms. Um, many scholars think it was intestinal roundworms, 10 to 16 inches long, that robbed the body of, of nutrients. And you can, you can think, <laughs> you can picture. But the angel of the Lord did this because God is supreme. And God will not give His glory to another. He will not. Josephus, actually a, a secular historian, records the same story. And, and some of the details are filled in. He said, When Herod entered the theater clad in glittering silver garment, his flatterers addressed him as a god. Secular historian. May you be propitious to us, And if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. The king accepted their flattery. Then looked upward. He saw an owl perched on a rope, a symbol, took it as a symbol of ill fortune. At the same time, he was seized by violent internal pains, which, by the way, if you're being eaten from the inside out by worms, that that might fit, and was carried into his palace where he died. God wins. And so when we, when we think of our relationship with God, when we try to take matters in our own hands, when we want what we want, when we are frustrated that God isn't working according to our plan, all of these things are taking His glory from Him because we are not ascribing Him the place that He deserves. And so Herod needs to be a cautionary tale to us to not do the same thing. To not go there but to give God glory where it is due. We end with 24 and 25. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So God dealt with another objector. He dealt with someone else trying to stop the church. It's done. And and Luke always gives us a little status updates of how the church is doing, what level they're at. And here they increase in level again. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And then the setup for what we'll do in two weeks after missions conference, and the setup for missions conference, 
And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service. They were taking the money that was helping the people that were going through the famine, go back to Antioch, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And that's going to set up a sending out of the gospel to the rest of the world. I end with just a couple thoughts. God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we still are under that same promise. God will build his church. And we can have confidence in that. Another thought, though, we get out of this story is prayer is essential for God's power to be unleashed. God answers prayer to show his glory. So if we don't pray, it it doesn't show his glory in the same way. And so prayer, what, for whatever reason God designed it to work this way, He hears our prayer, He answers prayer, and His, His glory and the gospel is increased because of it. So prayer is essential for God's power to be unleashed. And finally, He answers yes or no according to His purposes and His glory. And that is a good thing. He answers yes or no according to His purposes and glory. And that is a good thing. Village, trust God. When Satan attacks, go to him in prayer and give him glory when he answers. Your heavenly Father loves you and cares for you, is concerned for you, and is answering what is best for his glory and your good. Take it to the bank and trust it. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that we challenge you. We challenge you with our attitudes. We challenge you with our sin. We challenge you in so many ways with our unbelief, with our lack of prayer. But Lord, I pray that we as your church would recognize that you are the creator of all things and you are majestic. You have all glory and may we do all things for your glory. Lord, thank you that your church thrives, that the gospel changes lives and still does. Satan still can't stop the church even in Ukraine and Russia right now, your church and your gospel will go forward. Thank you for allowing us to be part of that, God. In your name, amen.